Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Fast Talk, Street Talk, Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk, Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On your mobile, on your wavelength, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV on what can only be described as a pretty momentous day uh, for the UK Parliament. We've got Prime Minister's questions today uh, for the first time in a little while. Boris Johnson uh, and, of course, Sir Keir Starmer uh, will be batting it out together, uh, trying to make sense of what's been happening over the course of the last few days and weeks. Of course, inflation uh, hitting an all-time high. Looks like it's going above 9%. Uh, we've got the rape uh, charge, which is possibly pending against the Tory MP. Uh, that Tory MP was arrested last Last night, held in custody, has now been released, but of course is banned from the parliamentary estate. So all eyes are now on the chamber of the House of Commons to see who isn't there today. It will be like playing a game of where's Wally. People will be peering up from all over the place trying to get their voices heard to prove that they're actually in Parliament, to prove that they are not the guy in question. It's a shocking story. And all it tells me uh, is that more and more people in this country, of course, will find themselves asking the question, what exactly are they doing? in Westminster. Why exactly are so many people under suspicion of some kind of sexual uh, misdemeanour or possibly something much, much more serious? What is actually going on uh, at the seat of democracy in this country? 0344 499 1000. We're going to start, uh, we're going to kick things off with Anne Whittacombe, former Brexit Party MEP, Conservative Minister for Prisons and Shadow Home Secretary. She's got plenty to say about all sorts of things today, in particular the Human Rights Act, which she thinks should be repealed. In particular, I'll be asking her about the atmosphere in Parliament, whether it has actually changed an awful lot. We'll also be asking her as well about Pretty Patel uh, telling a review to consider cutting Sadiq Khan's police powers too. Also, of course, uh, we've got lots more to talk about as well. Uh, the Ukrainian situation has gone from bad to worse, not in Ukraine, but here in the UK. I warned in the uh, weeks gone by that people who were virtue signalling around going, oh yes, we must help the Ukrainian refugees, we must bring them into our homes because we have a duty to help these poor desperate souls who are fleeing an absolutely horrendous war in another part of Europe. Well, guess what? All of these do-gooders have all gone, God, it's a bit harder than I thought. They're kicking them out. They're making Ukrainian refugees homeless. This is the Be Kind Brigade, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, local government agencies are being told that they have to now house these Ukrainian refugees uh, in public housing because basically their sponsors have given up on them. Marvellous, isn't it? Well done, guys. What a great reputation you have now made for this country offering to do something and then completely pulling the rug away when it gets a bit difficult. Absolutely shocking. We're going to talk about cycling as well, because down in Bournemouth they've decided cycle lanes aren't enough for cyclists. They've got to give them the rest of the road as well. Absolutely outrageous, ludicrous, ridiculous situation. Tonya Buxton will be here as well. We'll be talking about that terrible attack uh, on a footballer last night at a football pitch. LaDonna Harvey is here. Prime Minister's questions in the company of Daisy McAndrew. We'll be checking it all out, because here at the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, you will not miss a thing. Let's get it on. Now, time to say a very, very good morning to all of you. Uh, it's a very warm day out there again. It's going to be a beautiful afternoon by the looks of things. There is a bit of rain possibly on the horizon. But let us kick things off first of all with Anne Whittacombe, former Brexit Party MEP, Shadow Home Secretary, of course, and days gone by, and Conservative Minister for Prisons. Anne, a very good morning to you. 
Good morning to you. Now, let us kick off, I suppose, with the story on everybody's lips. I realise we can't go too heavily into what it might mean or who might be responsible and all of that. Um, but, I mean, this is not a good time for yet another scandal to hit Parliament. It seems to be like every week there's something else coming out, giving the impression to voters that it's being run sort of like a Wild West saloon down there. Well, uh, first of all, the fact that an allegation has been made does not mean that that allegation is true. Uh, and in fact, it isn't that long uh, since an MP was accused uh, and was completely uh, exonerated. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the whips went through exactly the same procedure. They asked him to stay away from Parliament, but they didn't name him despite huge pressure, particularly from the women MPs. Uh, and they were right not to, because in the end, it was proved to be completely without foundation. Absolutely no action was taken. Yes. So I think it's important to make the point that because an allegation is made, it doesn't follow that it is true. No, it uh, certainly I, is, is, and is. I a think very... that's crucial. And is, I, would say I would say something else. Obviously, if somebody has uh, uh, committed uh, uh, an offence of that nature, um, then they should pay the price. But... If somebody, and I'm not saying in this case, I'm, I'm making now a general observation, if somebody makes an allegation knowing that it is false, that person then should be at risk of prosecution, instead of which they have anonymity for life. And there's an imbalance in the way that the law is operating. Yes, I totally agree with everything you've just said, Anne, and thank you for making those points, because it is important. However, um, there are an awful lot of these allegations being made. And it seems to me that uh, for a place which doesn't employ that many people compared to other organisations like the civil service or, or other big companies, they do have an awful lot of these types of allegations being made. And people are pointing to a sort of culture in Westminster where, uh, unlike most other places, it has never really changed from the old days when you and I used to be knocking around, drinking till all hours and, you know, partying away and having a great time. People don't really do that anymore, but apparently they still do it in Westminster. Well, um... You know, first of all, I was there for 23 years. I never encountered this sort of culture. Mm. I mean, it just wasn't there. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, you know, I can safely say that when the Westminster scandal first broke, which was actually some, you know, a few years ago now, I mean, it's, it's 2017 that it began. Uh, when it first broke, I mean, I was asked, you know, if, if, if I recognised this, this sort of a culture. And I replied quite truthfully that I didn't. Yeah. Um, now, I cannot speak for what it's like now because I am not there now. Um, but, uh, for example, the allegation we're now talking about goes back to 2009. Yes. Well, 2002, actually. Hmm? 2002, actually, because it goes... Oh, 2002 until nine. Yeah. 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 So that's what uh, I'm saying. I mean, so you know, there, there, but there's always been a sort of heady mix, hasn't there, in Parliament uh, of of people who work very hard, work very long hours, uh, who are pretty dedicated to the job, but who also let off steam. Um, you know, I think there were there used to be what nine or ten different bars in the House of Commons that were always open as long as Parliament was doing its business. Um, there's been moved to try and make the Parliament sit earlier and not sit quite so late, but that still goes on. So there are people. And Nick Dubois was te was was telling us yesterday. Um, you know, in his day, he was a London MP, lived in London, he went home every night, but an awful lot of people don't. And so, you know, there are, shall we say, temptations that some people fall foul of. Well, there may well be temptations. There are temptations in lots of jobs. Uh, and there may well be temptations. Um, but I, all I'm saying is that I don't recognise the culture as being anything like as widespread as is now portrayed. I mean, in my day, the scandal used to be that an MP had had an affair with his secretary. Yes. So that was the sort of scandal we used to get, right. uh, other than this business of unwanted sexual approaches. Yes, no, quite. Well, I mean, it's going to be an interesting day today, um, not least because, of course, the person in question whoever it may be, has been banned from the parliamentary estate. So we've been reading all night on sort of social media, people saying, well, it's going to be a kind of game of hide and seek, isn't it? I mean, I don't think I can ask you if you've ever been in a, in a parliament which is like the way it is now, because it seems to have gone sort of slightly off kilter, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, and also, I mean, I think the press has grown over the years. I mean, it's not a new phenomenon. More and more concerned with what I call the politics of personal destruction yeah. uh, rather than with you know, the, the massively serious issues of the day. Uh, but what worries me about this is that um, if we go on protecting accusers, even when you know the accusation isn't valid, um, that this can be used politically. You'll be coming up to an election, so you make allegations knowing that that person will be suspended, will be named on the internet, etc., etc. Uh, so 
I, I, I do worry about it. I, I, I worry about the whole culture of allegation and, you know, reaction. Now, interestingly, um, if somebody is caught, bound to rights, um, then that's fine. They go and they pay a criminal penalty, which is what they should do. Um, but what does concern me is question marks, you know, question marks remaining over people. Yes, no, I think that's absolutely right. And talking of question marks over people, I'm going to be interested to see how Sakir Starmer operates today because, for me, uh, this whole kind of, you know, saintly halo of his, which uh, says, I'm a man of great integrity, has kind of gone. No matter whether he is found to have been in breach of the rules or not, the fact that he clearly doesn't have any integrity has really come out in the last few weeks, hasn't it? Well, I do not imagine for one moment, Mike, that we're going to be hearing Keir Starmer talking about Partygate no. today. I think, uh, you know... Um, he's, it's a blessed relief. It is a blessed relief, actually. Uh, so I don't think he'll be doing that. Um, but, of course, you know, the, the, there is inflation um, and the tendency of the opposition to try and say somehow it's the government's fault. I mean, this is global. We've got the combination of COVID and the Ukraine war all playing into it. Uh, and uh, I think it's time for responsible politics. Yes, well, it would be nice to be able to get on with some of the things that we need to get on with. Pretty yeah. Patel uh, has been making quite a lot of statements over the last few days and weeks. We're talking about the Rwandan policy supposedly being yes. made to actually work. They're going to supposedly name some people they're going to send. However, we still see every single day hordes of illegal migrants arriving on the beaches, uh, seemingly aided by the RNLI and the border force to come here and live for free. Um, it seems an extraordinary state of affairs. She's also talking about reviewing police powers. She's talking about giving taste as the special constables. It's almost as though, you know, they're rushing to try and do loads and loads of stuff, but nothing's actually happening. Well, the Rwanda policy is not going to have any effect at all until the first plane load leaves for Rwanda. Yes. I mean, that that is just a fact of life. I mean, the, there was an immediate impact with, with people thinking, oh, this is about to happen. Having realised it is not going to happen for some time, uh, by the government's own admission, you know, admission probably several months, um, and people think, oh, well, they, they, they just come here. Uh, because it's not going to happen yet. That's why I think it's crucial that, that, that you know, the first plane load goes so that the message goes over, we are very serious uh, uh, about this. Yes. No, I think that's absolutely right. And as far and as Northern the... Northern Ireland, you haven't mentioned Northern Ireland, but that, to my mind, is, is, is one of the biggest issues now... Well, I was saving that up. I was saving that up for later, Anne. But since you're, okay. now, since you're now running the show, I think you should tell us about what your views are on Northern Ireland. Right. Well, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, Brexit is not to blame for this. It's the Brexit deal that is to blame for this. And the Brexit party did say at the time uh, that um, this was dangerous. It was going to divide the kingdom. It was going to threaten the breakup of the United Kingdom. And we were told it's OK. You know, we've got a year to sort out the trade arrangements. And in the course of that year, this will all be sorted out. Mm. Well, it could have been if the EU had been reasonable. But anybody who expects the EU to be reasonable over Brexit is frankly living in cloud cuckoo land. They've said, or some of their leaders have said point blank, that they want to punish Britain for yeah. leaving. They want to deter other member states from leaving. They're not going to be reasonable. And even now, Boris is still talking about negotiation. I know. You negotiate only if the other chap's reasonable. Absolutely right. It seems astonishing to me that they would have expected that. And if it does turn out that, that, that Boris Johnson decides just to sort of steamroller over Article 16 oh. and decides to, to, to kick out the protocol, well, he should have done it two years ago, shouldn't he? Well, exactly. I mean, he's still talking about doing it rather than actually doing it. Now, Liz Trust is, is now uh, indicated that, that it's about to happen. It's got to happen. It's got to happen to convince the EU, if nothing else, that we are serious. Yeah, no, I think um, you're absolutely and, right. And yes, we may have a few unfortunate consequences, but quite honestly, you know, this country must just face that in the interests of the long-term union. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And stay with us for a while, because we've got lots of other things to talk about, of course, including the Ukrainian refugee scenario, uh, which appears to have blown up in everybody's face, and Widdicombe, and me, Mike Graham, back after this. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're talking to Anne Widdicombe. And Anne, uh, a lot of people are praising you this morning, saying, why on earth are you not in number 10? And if not, uh, at least in the House of Lords. Have you never been uh, offered anything like that? No, uh, Cameron didn't like me. Uh, and when I retired uh, from the House of Commons, he did not offer me uh, a seat in the Lords. So it's as simple as that. It's within the gift of the Prime Minister 
I've gone away and done other things. You know, there's no yes, point. Yes, no, I know, and you've, and you've, and of course, you would all succeed at them. But it seems ludicrous, doesn't it, that it's at the whim uh, of a political uh, sort of a pygmy like David Cameron as to who goes into the House of Lords? Because I mean, no doubt he'll end up in there at some point or other. Uh, Tony Blair will no doubt end up in there at some point. But you were a government minister. You know, you should have been. Uh, you should have been. You should have been given that uh, choice at least. Well, I admit that, that, you know, I thought it might happen, but it didn't. And, you know, it always was entirely within the, the, the gift of the Prime Minister, as I say. It didn't happen, Mike. I mean, I live in, in the world as it is, not in the world as I might have liked it to be. Yes, if only everybody did that, because let us talk a little bit about the, the state of things. A piece on the front page. I know that you and I differ on the subject of working from home, and you've written about we it do. again this week. However, front yeah. page of the Daily Mail today, uh, following the ludicrous revelations um, from Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, he seems powerless to stop inflation, right, despite the fact that that's actually his job. Uh, they're saying that's why the Bank of England is helpless, because the workers only have to go into the office one day a week. Yeah. First of all, two things there which are complete nonsense. You know, uh, There is a way in which inflation was, is within the control of government and the Bank of England. Uh, the Bank of England will obviously look after interest rates. Uh, the government has to be careful about wage inflation and how it deals with union demands, but... Um, they're not the source of the inflation. As I say, it's global. We've got Ukraine and the shortages that have arised, arisen as a result of that. Uh, and uh, we've had COVID. Uh, and there are all manner of reasons why, despite the fact we've now got the lowest unemployment uh, ever, you know, which is a wonderful thing for the government to have achieved, despite that, uh, we do have inflation. So uh, I, I don't actually accept your analysis as was all to do with Bank of England in the first place. It's not. They have a part. Yes, but I mean, you would accept, presumably, that the governor of the Bank of England does have some um, uh, sort of, you know, say over what happens to the economy. And he's supposed I mean, to I make think... sure that the economy uh, is protected from what might be described as possible outside influences, because... During the you time when, not. during the time when interest rates were at rock bottom, um, there surely must have been something that could have been done uh, to protect the economy from what's about to happen to it. Well, first of all, you know there are some things you can't protect. You might as well have said that we should have all lived perfectly normally during the Second World War. I mean, there are some things which are external, as COVID was, as Ukraine is. Uh, these things are external; they have a massive impact, together with the global reaction to these things, not just us in isolation that's affected. Uh, you know, and you've, yeah, you've but there's got... not not every single country in Europe, Anne, is having the same inflationary price spiral that we're having. Not every place in Europe is paying as much for petrol and oil and gas as we are. So the price structure of this country is somehow wrong, and it's not happening everywhere. Well, first of all, um, I would say that I think that previous governments, I'm not talking about the Bank of England now, but previous governments were responsible uh, for our energy policy, that we're so reliant uh, on foreign imports uh, when we need not be. So, I mean, I, I, I and that is successive governments, uh, coalition, conservative, Labour, whatever. Uh, so I would say that all I'm saying to you is there isn't some magic wand that the Bank of England can wave. But the second thing, let me get back to where you and I fundamentally disagree. Yeah, I wouldn't work. call it fundamentally. I think we do. On I th- no, I think you can work from home and many people who do your sorts of jobs can work. I don't want everyone to go to an office. I'm just saying that the people who should be in office, like the people that work at the Bank of England, should be in the bleeding well, office. First of all, um, it may not be at all necessary for all of them to be at the office. It may be that what they do, they can do from home. Now, some civil service jobs can be done from home, some can't. You know? and, and this is what I said uh, in my article. You know, There are jobs which shouldn't be done from home. But plenty of them can be. And and just to blanketly say, you know, you're helpless if all your workers are at home. Well, if they're working at home, you're not helpless at all. Well, I think the, the proof is in the pudding, surely, Anne. I mean, if the passport office isn't working and nobody's in the office, that might be the reason. If the DVLA isn't working, it might be the reason because they're not in the actual office. And surely you can't take those two things and separate them. The reason the civil service is in such a bad place is because hardly anybody is actually doing any work. That's the reason. Uh, that is not the reason. I mean, I've worked with the civil service for donkey shares and I know darn well they're pretty hard working. Well, they so maybe used the to be when you were there because they were all going into work. They all used to get on a train, commute into the office, sit at their desk for five to ten hours a day and do a job of work. Now they sit at home in their slippers, stroking their cat, doing nothing. I can tell you there were several occasions well, when I was a minister when a very senior civil servant, different senior civil servants, would say to me, I'm working at home tomorrow because I want to sort this out uninterrupted I've told the office not to telephone. 
uh, and you know, I want to get this again. This would be some very major detailed piece of legislation or whatever it was. And he wanted to concentrate. I concentrate better at home than I do if I'm surrounded with people coming in asking me questions yes. every time. But you must, con- you, know, you must, I'm you just must. Saying, Horses for courses Indeed. and allow that for some horses it's the right horse. Yes, but for an awful lot of horses, you know, they're not doing a stroke of work. They're sitting there having sandwiches and doing nothing because nobody's yeah, supervising them. You know as well as I do, Anne, it is absolutely the way of things that some people, when given the opportunity to do nothing, will do nothing. And so the boss can see that they're doing nothing because the work isn't being produced. And the boss has exactly the same disciplinary power. The boss is at home as well, though. Home- against home workers as he does in the office the boss uh, is and, also and the, that, no, but the, I mean the head of the passport office hasn't been in the office for over a year had to be summoned to Downey Street to be told to get back to work well yeah and tell them to, to do what I mean you know well issue passports is what they do exactly that is what in get, getting back to work means it doesn't necessarily mean going and occupying a particular desk now Mike I've said very clearly in the article I haven't said everybody should work from home I've said very clearly if a job is being done badly, there can only be two reasons. The first is it can't actually be done from home, in which case it shouldn't be. Yes. The second is it can be done from home, but the employee is slacking. And if that happens, what I'm pointing out is the boss still has all the disciplinary measures to hand. You can get... Yeah, well, good luck, good luck firing civil servants. I'm sure you might have tried in your time. Pretty Patel had a pretty hard time of it. She had to pay somebody about 300,000 quid to go away. Um, let's talk about uh, your former job as prisons minister. You're quite right to say that the marriage proposals of Levi Belfield are entirely idiotic. Uh, you've written in your column this week about uh, the Human Rights Act. Tell us why you think it should be repealed. Oh, well, I mean, it's created an awful lot of nonsense. Now, when the European Human Rights Act was first incorporated into our law under the Blair government, I was Shadow Home Secretary at the time. And what I said was very clearly, and it's all there in Hansard, uh, we're going to watch this. And if it results in a lot of nonsense, then a future Conservative government uh, will uh, decouple uh, those two things. Mm. Uh, and it has resulted in a lot of nonsense. Now, the Levi Belfield case, as I point out, is ludicrous. He wants to get married. He cannot be married in any sense of the word. There are no conjugal visits uh, in UK prisons, so there's going to be no physical relationship. Yeah. Um, he uh, He's never going to get out, so it can't be claimed that the woman uh, is waiting for him. Um, it is a complete nonsense. Uh, and that is guaranteed by the Human Rights Act that he can actually have that sort of sham and it's his right. Uh, but there have been far more serious things criminals resisting deportation on grounds of their right to a family life. Um, Abu Hamza resisted deportation for ages on the grounds Mm. that he had a right to be guaranteed no torture. You know, I mean, this was the United States. Yeah, I know. It's crazy, isn't it? But Uh, how easy easy would it be to decouple ourselves from it, though? Well, if you can couple, you can decouple. Uh, And it would be straightforward, but I suspect that, well, I don't suspect um, the government has said, uh, that if it does that, it will replace it with a Bill of Rights. Now, that's going to cause its own problems. My instinct is decouple it, go back to where we work as it worked. Yes, absolutely right. Anne Whittacombe, delightful to speak to you as ever. Thank you very much indeed. Anne's column in the Daily Express, of course, today. Uh, lots of stuff in there to talk about, lots of things to get your teeth into. We'll be getting our teeth into many big more stories as well uh, coming up over the course of the next couple of hours. 0344 499 1000. We're going to talk cycling and the madness of the city councils around this country who are giving cyclists free reign to do whatever they want. It's an outrage. This is, of course, Talk TV. See it, hear it, think it. Talk radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Big day today uh, in the studios here because we'll be going live to Westminster at midday for Prime Minister's questions. The first ones really uh, since the last break that they had and the first one since the election, I think I'm right in saying. Uh, we're going to have uh, Daisy McAndrew sitting in with us. She's going to be telling us what she makes of the uh, uh, dancing around that they're going to be doing. Uh, Sir Keir Starmer surely will not be able to mention Partygate, Beergate uh, or indeed his integrity uh, because it's shot to pieces. Boris Johnson will probably be on reasonably good but of course the huge cloud over Westminster this morning uh, is that a Tory MP has been uh, arrested and accused of rape and various other uh, sexual assaults as well dating all the way back to 2002 uh, the name has not been released we don't know who it is uh, but there is fevered speculation as you can imagine going on uh, all over the place and uh, the man in question has indeed been uh, banned from visiting the parliamentary estate so he will not be in Prime Minister's question so you can be sure that there will be plenty of people checking who's not there 
as it were. But let's turn our attention to something even more important, and that is, of course, the obsession that some city and town councils have in this country with making life so much more difficult for motorists and so much more easy for cyclists. Bournemouth being the latest, cyclists are being told to take a prominent position on a road in Bournemouth. Even though they've already got a cycle lane on the road, they've actually painted a picture of a bicycle on the part of the road that the cars are supposed to drive on. And they're actively encouraging cyclists to actually cycle down the centre of the road in order to make drivers aware that they're there. I mean, it's literally madness. Let's talk to Quentin Wilson, motoring journalist and broadcaster. Quentin, very good morning to you. Morning. Now, I mean, listen, we're all for sharing the road space. We're all for, you know, people who want to cycle and we're all for people who want to be healthy and all that's fine. But this is really starting to get ridiculous, isn't it? It seems like the application of common sense, Mike, is in short supply here. I mean, if you build a cycle lane, that's great because it keeps cyclists away from from cars and heavy goods vehicles and protects them. Uh, And that's the best way. But if you then have, in parallel to that cycle lane, a painted cycle lane on the carriageway and and tell cyclists to to drive in the middle of the road, this seems to be absolutely nuts. Mm. And what's happening here is is you're creating more conflicts and more divisions between cyclists and and, and other road users. And we can't have that. We have to coexist peacefully. So I I would look at this and say this seems to be, you know, an ideologically driven initiative a policy which is creating more congestion and more pollution and therefore undermines the basic principles of active travel. Well, I don't know whether you saw the other day that uh, there's something I picked up, that Imrix did a survey of the most congested capital cities of the world. And guess which one's number one? London. London has come in as the most single congested city. And when you think about all the congestion in all the other parts of the world that you and I have been to, uh, like Sao Paulo, uh, like places like Rome, places like Paris, places like New York, London is worse than all of them. And simply and purely because of all the different bits of street furniture that suddenly have appeared, all the different traffic lights, all the different cycle lanes, all the different switchbacks that go on. I mean, he's turned London into the inside of a Meccano set. I'm in London right now, Mark, and, and I drove down uh, Park Lane in a in a cab, and and you know they've they've made it one lane, and and previously you used to be uh, you know able to to ride through Hyde Park, and now there's a cycle lane and this fuming, polluting line of traffic that is just not not making the atmosphere and the air quality better. So it's a policy that's faulted, in my opinion. Well, I think so, and I predicted this as I do many things when the highway code was changed into what can only be described as a kind of cyclist charter. They basically said to cyclists, you do whatever you like, don't worry about the consequences, it will always be somebody else's fault if you are in some way uh, involved in some kind of accident. They basically gave cyclists carte blanche uh, to have people stopping on roundabouts for them, to have people not turning left in case there's a cyclist coming, not turning right in case there's one coming the opposite way. We saw a guy just the other day getting fined for overtaking um, a parked car um, because there was a cyclist coming the other way on the opposite side of the road. I mean, it's madness. Look, active travel is really important, and we've got to reduce air quality, and we've got to increase the amount of people who don't use cars and increase electrification. But when this gets to absurd levels, as we're seeing now, that actually are counter to the the, the, the laudable aims mm making our air quality better and less congestion, less pollution, it needs to be looked at really, really hard. And when ideologies kind of conflict with common sense, this is really dangerous. And we're seeing far too much of this right now. I think so. And it's also kind of encouraging more hate, if you like, between the two groups, because there are plenty of cyclists who are very reasonable, who stop at red lights and who do all the things that they're supposed to do. And I see that and I always say that as well. But there are some who do not. Uh, last night, for example, I was going, I was working late here at the office. I was driving home, it was about half past ten at night. Two cyclists riding two abreast down a single road, which was just a two-way road. So I had to go on the complete opposite side of the road to overtake them. One of them didn't even have any lights. You get dangerous car drivers as well, Mike, and, and that's just the, the, the way of the world. But we've got to make sure that we understand that the 37 million drivers in this country are not all going to convert to cycling. And that's a basic fact. So we have to make sure that we are not creating a war zone on our roads mm. between these two tribal 
groups. And, and that's really, really worrying because it is getting worse and worse. Well, that's right. No, there's plenty of people who can cycle because they are either uh, just going to work in an office or, you know, they're having a bit of, a, of an exercise of a, of a day, uh, given what they, whatever it is that they want to do. But there's people who have jobs of work where they have to carry loads of stuff around. So they need a van. You know, they can't just put it in a box and put it in front of the bike and cycle that way. There's people who have to take their dogs for a walk, take their kids to school. You know, they can't all cycle. And quite frankly, um, you know, the car is still the major driver of revenue for this government. People who drive cars put an awful lot of tax money into the government's coffers. And quite frankly, I think they should be treated better. It's not just about revenue, though. It's about making sure we can all coexist peacefully on our crowded roads. Um, and, and this isn't the way to, to, to make that coexistence work. So I would say that we need to look really, really hard at some of these policies and, and make sure that cyclists have their own dedicated lanes away from traffic. Uh, and are safe and protected and not to make sure that you know they're driving in the middle of the carriageway and people are getting understandably cross and there are tensions and conflicts on, on roads this does nobody any good at all no of course not and the reason why so many people drive is not because they want to it's usually because they have to very few people drive because they want to it's incredibly expensive uh, fuel prices have gone through the roof but they do it because for example we've just been told before this show started that over the weekend of the, the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, the tubes are going to be on strike, right? We've also heard that over the course of the summer, most of the railway unions are going to go on strike because they think they want more money. So, you know, it's pretty much the only way to get from point A to point B, especially outside of London or outside of any major city, it's in a car. Look, we have a transport crisis, don't we? We don't have the public transport networks that we deserve and buses are, are broadly, you know, unreliable and train fares are getting more and more expensive. So, yeah, those 37 million drivers, many, many of them have no option but to use their cars and they shouldn't be vilified for this. Um, the costs are going absolutely crazy. I'm a great campaigner for electric cars, but there are people who can't afford them. So we need to understand how do we manage this? So we need, you know, proper policies from the government and not lip service to to, 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 to groups who, who lobby aggressively. Mm. No, I think you're absolutely right. I couldn't have put it better myself. Quentin, thank you very much indeed. Quentin Wilson, motoring journalist and broadcaster, setting out precisely why many of these um, local councils, whether they be in towns or cities, are frequently driven by ideology. I mean, there are people out there who think cars should be done away with, that we shouldn't be allowed to have cars. Some people in cycling lobbies will say, but cities were never designed to have cars driving around them because when they were built, we didn't have them. Well, that's fine, but now we do have them. And like I always say, you know, I had a bike when I was 12. Now that I'm fully grown, I drive a car because it's not a toy. It gets me from A to B. The dog can go in the back of it. The kids can go in the back of it. I can take it on holiday. I can't do that with a bike, I'm afraid. If you want to cycle around in your Lycra having your midlife crisis, you be my guest. But don't get in my way. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, this is Talk TV. Edgy talk. Plain talk. Unrivaled talk. Mike Graham. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On your mobile, on your wavelength, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on the Talk TV. This is, of course, the one place to be for common sense, for the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And of course, in order to maintain. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. You can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. That particularly hard standard. Tony Buxton is here with us. Tonya, very, very good afternoon. Well, good morning. Good I morning. Say. I'm getting ahead of myself. It's a nice day out there. It's because it's so sunny and Isn't lovely. It lovely. I just love it. Do you is... know, I was I was walking around yesterday thinking, this is great. It's yeah. actually like being on holiday. Yeah, it's it's like being on. I, I mean, London when the sun is out. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm beautiful city. I mean, all of Britain actually when the sun is yeah. out is beautiful. But Soho in particular, especially. I'm hoping that they're going to carry on with what they did before and put Keep all the, the tables, tables out. outside. And, yeah, I haven't and stop been there the for a while. I think. I think that became a thing, didn't it? I mean, I, I, don't, I can't so. imagine they're, gonna, they're not going to go back to that. It's just such a lovely atmosphere. Yeah, you it know, really is. I have kind of sit there with all the kind of 20-somethings-year-olds and pretend I'm young again. That's what <laughs> I do. It makes me feel I good. I don't really get over there as much as, as, as I used to just because it's sort of out of the way for me to get to. And, of course, if you have to go on the tube, you have to make sure that uh, the tubes are running. They've just announced this morning that they're going to go on strike uh, over the Platinum Jubilee weekend. Isn't that nice? Isn't that fabulous? You know, you know, I, I came in on Sunday. I was with Richard Tice on Sunday. Yes. And I made the Jubilee try. I heard about try, that. Um, and I had to make four changes. On, I'm on the Northern Line. So yeah. Previously, I would get on my station and, 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 and just, come, straight and come here. off at the Northern yeah. Line. Um, I had to make four changes just to get here because of stops and delays and yeah. this problem and that i mean sadiq Khan, they don't make oh, it easy for make you him go away. i know I, i've been saying this ever since yesterday when i discovered that uh, london has now been named by inrix which is a traffic um sort of charting company uh, we are the, the the most congested city in the world yeah right worse than tokyo worse than sao paulo worse than new york worse than paris worse than rome remember you used to go to italy and drive around yeah, and, be crazy. and you'd be going yeah. oh look there's eight lanes going into two this should be interesting loads of people on scooters girls you know with their hair yeah. and their gucci bags <laughs> exactly. smoking yeah. on the scooters i used to love all that <laughs> yeah and you'd be going this is bonkers but now here exactly the same. I mean, if you can't you can't get above about seven miles an hour no you can't you, you absolutely cyclists can't. all over the place i mean god help us anyway <laughs> Um, apart from that, how are you? I'm really well. Good. There's, there's a lot to talk about yes, today. Let's get, yeah, because a lot of food talk. Actually, I wanted to ask you about yeah. trifles. I was having an argument at the weekend about this particular trifle. Yes. Because it doesn't have alcohol in it. Now, I was told that all trifles have to have alcohol of some kind. Okay, so I'm going to let you into the secret that I let Richard into mm. is that I really don't like trifle. Right. Okay. So I made it for him because I, I you know, he asked me to. Yes. And I, I find it hard to say no when somebody asks me for yes. food. It feels like I'm not feeding someone <laughs> when I should. So I made it for him. I actually added alcohol into mine. I added some amaretto into the sponge biscuit. Because I thought it didn't it make should, sense no, to me. No, it should have amaretto. I said that. Because I spoke to somebody it, yeah. from the Bake Off, I think, on the day. And I said, shouldn't it have amaretto? Amaretto. If it's got yes. amaretti, uh, you spoke biscuits. to Amanda, who's amazing. Oh yeah, I did. Yes. Yeah, and and if um, and if surely it should have some. And then she said, "Well, all trifles should have alcohol." Yeah. So this one didn't, and this one has you know kind of like those lemony and almondy flavours. Mm. Um, um, and the guys loved it. I mean, Richard loved it, yeah. and Aaron loved it. Um, but I, I am not a trifle fan, so it's hard for me to be the judge yeah. of it. I can make it. I mean, I'm not a massive <laughs> trifle fan. I'm not a massive fan of puddings, actually, surprisingly. Um, I love just puddings. because I worked in a bakery, and yeah, so I when see. I made cakes all day for like, I used to work there sometimes seven days a week, and I loved making the cakes. But I kind of don't really have. I very rarely have dessert. Do you know what I find though, Mike, and I wonder if any of your viewers, um, listeners think this as well, is that as you get older, your sweet tooth lessens and you become more salty. And there's something about your evolving taste buds. Mm. And that's why as you get older, you like flavours like um, blue cheese yes. and truffle, where you couldn't stand them when you were younger. Okay. And when you're younger, you like to have puddings and cakes and more sweet things. Yeah. But as you get older, it's the, the salty, bitter pull okay. that pulls you more. So I think it might be age-related. Don't tell anyone I said that. No, it Don't want well to admit be. to getting old. No, you don't want to do no. that. Let's <laughs> talk about the, uh, the, the bog-off scenario, though, because obviously... The, yeah. the weekend, I completely forgotten actually the government had promised to outlaw all of this junk food advertising and buy one, get one free and all of that. And my initial reaction to finding out that they weren't going to do it was well, I just all said good because I think that's one of the things you and I disagree about. I don't like governments telling me what I should be eating or what I should be doing. So, okay, I normally would completely agree with you and mm. I literally feel completely split and torn in half mm. on this one because there's two sides of this. We're going into a cost of living crisis thanks to all the money that they 
got rid of during lockdown. Yeah. Don't let you tell. Don't let them tell you it's not to do anything else no. apart from the money they spent on lockdown. Yeah. That's why we're here now. They literally might as well have just set it on fire. They, and they did. Right? And now look where. So we're in this cost of living crisis. People are struggling to get um, food onto the table. And so um, I don't ever think that there should be restrictions on what people buy. But we also have an obesity crisis in this country. And it's an obesity with our children. Mm. And you've got to bear in mind that once a child is fat and they get fat from junk food, from these buy one, get one free, mm. uh, sugary things and high processed foods, once they're fat, their likelihood of getting cancer is 50% more, mm. isn't it? And so, and other diseases that you would get because of obesity are much worse, especially if you are a child. Because once you're a fat as a child, it's, yeah. it's not almost impossible. It is so, so it's very, very difficult, difficult yeah, to really then is. get to a healthy weight. Yeah. So these, I mean, I wish it was buy one, get one free on all the good stuff. Mm. If they could do that, that would be great. But it tends to be the junk foods, yeah. the sweets, the processed stuff that have no nutritional benefit, just empty, toxic mm. calories. And so I'm so, I'm, I'm really torn about no, this. No, I know I what am. you mean. I know what you mean. But I think the problem is, is that an awful lot of the sort of targeted areas are the wrong areas if you know what I mean like yeah. for example um, an awful lot of parents and I say this as a parent knowing that my kids do these things they go to the local supermarket and they get a, a meal deal yeah. you know they get a sandwich a packet of crisps and a drink for whatever it is because they can afford to do it it's, 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 it's within their budget a lot of parents it's within their budget it's easier yeah. than cooking food and I know they should cook for them for, for school dinners and all of that but but that's kind of for, for a lot of parents that's a real godsend and they're now saying that if one of those items is somehow bad for you they're going to hike the price. And that doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't seem right, but what there should be is a whole revision of what people can get. I mean, as you know, I really feel that we could get rid of so much of this if we just taught people to cook yeah. properly and cost-effectively without it taking much time. I'm not talking about cordon bleu meals. Right. I'm just talking about tasty, rustic food that yeah. people can make big batches of yeah. for their family. People are given these tools, you know, this would be a fantastic But do you know, I but, also... Sorry to interrupt you. Uh, but, but unfortunately... Like you said, people get given a set amount of money, mm. and if you're, you've got that small amount of money, say you know four quid or three quid or whatever it is, you can buy a lot more junk for it than you can buy healthy yeah. stuff, and that needs to be revised. And I think also people think, and you've often talked about how people's sort of information isn't always right about what's good and what's bad. Yeah. But people, I'm sure, will go into any number of outlets and buy a sandwich, thinking that's better for them yeah. than going to McDonald's. Oh, but some, it often isn't. Oh my gosh! I mean, have you Mike, seen those ones you... that they do like a sort of a breakfast sandwich, yeah. and it's like sausage, bacon, and egg in a sandwich? And you're going what they uh, many of those sandwiches have your all your calories that you would need for one day and and are so saturated with fat and kind of sugar carbohydrates it's so so bad for you mm. that i mean that's one thing that people could do is just try and look at the calories but kids never do that no. they never want to do that and so we are on this really really difficult terrible time at the moment and and esther mcveigh's insisting that it's great news you know um, the mp that you know this is getting rid of and she doesn't ever want it back again and we've got jamie oliver fighting for children's yeah. um, obesity to prevent obesity and they're both good people mm. and they're both i'm not a fan of jamie's i have to say and i've also heard him just this week advertising for a big supermarket oh, and you it? think so you're um, he's got you're, five kids you know well you know but he's, he's like, here he is advocating for everybody to eat better yeah but he's operating for one of the people one of the biggest operators and i'm not going to name them um who purvey all this stuff? Do you know? Just is he telling them to stop selling it? Do you know? Just on that point, Mike, wouldn't it be great if the supermarkets that made unbelievably obscene profits uh. during lockdown and are part of the cause of the obesity problem that we have yeah. gave back a percentage of those profits? You're yes. talking about windfall taxes. Yeah. I'm not sure that I want it to go on to the energy. Uh, providers because mm. I think they pay enough tax as it is um, you know eventually it'll make up the prices of fuel go up why not supermarkets pay a windfall tax I think that's for a great idea for all the money they made I mean when you're looking at the profits they were, at one point they, they were made, the only places open weren't they absolutely the only places open they were made it's just obscene the amount of money they've yeah. made so it should be put back in and they should make these healthy meals maybe a subsidy to, to the people so you can go in there and get the equivalent of a really healthy meal that you could get for one of these trenchy yeah. processed meals for the same amount of money right. and that would that would save this wouldn't it that well would it certainly would out. it certainly would but I'm still slightly queasy about anybody I mean we were looking at um, uh, government departments just the other day and how none of them really seem to be working very well from the Department of Health to the Department of Education to the Department of Transport I mean just every single department you look at pick one out of the air and you go, nope, it's not working. Yeah. They, you know, how dare they tell us what we should eat? 
I, I, but I agree with you. I mean, if, 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 I, if I ruled the world, if I did, if I was in, you know, given that thing, I would literally command people who have worked in every single industry in every single business and made a success of it and mm. put them in that ministry the problem is is we have mps that have never really worked yeah. never worked a day in their life right. never stacked a supermarket never worked in a school never worked in a hospital right. deciding what's the most important things and they have no idea what they're talking about i mean Sergei javid i mean did work but he was a deutsche bank yes which is not exactly <laughs> on the front line of consumerism yes, is it you know exactly. what i mean let's just do another hundred billion deal with exactly. you know Goldman Sachs it's not real is it, it it's really just isn't. not real it and really I'm, I'm really fed up of Rishi telling us that you know we're in this tr this problem because of the fuel prices and because of Ukraine when we know it's because of what he did during lockdown yes and um, clearly we are alone probably with the biggest rate of inflation in Europe Unbelievable. I mean you know and I'm, I'm not in any way you know defending the EU uh, at all, but we seem to be paying a higher price for all of this than anyone. It's is. insane. Can I just ask you, Mike? I'm not, uh, Mike. I'm not very good on these these kind of VAT things. But mm. if they cut VAT on fuel, yes. wouldn't that bring down the prices of everything? Yes. And if they cut VAT, um, then that would help the common person because most people aren't VAT registered. No. So it would it would help the companies. Yes. That need to. Well, VAT is what they call a regressive tax because the less money you have, the higher proportion of your income you pay in VAT. So you never get it back. No. So that's my point. Why don't they just cut the VAT on these on fuel? Well, because I can only if assume. If fuel's cut, because yeah. fuel affects everything, doesn't it? Everything it does. comes from fuel. Yeah. Food, um, just everything mm. is, is to do with fuel. So if they do that and help people today that need help, then that would really make a big difference to people's pockets now. Of course it would. But of course it wouldn't make a difference. It would make also a big difference to the coffers of the government and they would go... Oh, now we haven't got that money. It's the same argument I always make about the whole business of electric cars. You know, people go, oh, yeah, let's all have electric cars. You won't have to pay any road tax, you think? Yeah. So when, you know, they, where are they going to find the 40 billion that they get now from? Exactly. They're going to make you pay road tax. Absolutely. Of course they are, because yeah. they can't. I keep telling people, I have to remind them every day, they don't have any money. It's all our money, right? And when they give it back to us, you don't say thank you. You say, hang on a minute, I gave you 100 quid, you just give me back a tenner. You want me to be grateful? It's exactly Why? that. I don't think people realise that there is no public purse no. in the sense that, you know, it's, it's not some magic money. It's no. money that we pay in, that we've paid our yeah. taxes for. And Rishi Sunak wants us all badly. to be terribly grateful, even though it's going to be very difficult, he says. It's going to be difficult for him. It won't be difficult for him. I mean, his, his, his swimming pool, you know, you can't heat those for very cheap money. I mean, it's going to cost, <laughs> could cost him 20 grand just to heat a swimming pool. Poor guy. That's a small change have, for him, Maybe don't we forget. should have a collection. Uh, yeah. Pass the plate round. Tonya's here. We've got more to talk about. Coming up, we're going to talk about kids and school as well, because schools are still not operating properly. Dentists are still not operating properly. The NHS is still busted. You know, we need to fix some of this stuff pretty damn quick, I think. Uh, 0344 499 1000 is the number. You can text us at 81089. Uh, and also, of course, uh, oh, oh, um, eight, sorry, that's not true, is it? It's uh, 87222. Uh, but anyway... We'll be back after this. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Got a little uh, text here from Dave who says, Mike, you should come to the Waitrose in St Albans to see the middle class do-gooders. They think they're socially superior, but they're so rude and bad-mannered. All they care about is seeming to be virtuous. This is the uh, the story I was talking about earlier, that all these people who volunteered to take Ukrainians into their houses, they're kicking them all out, yeah, making cope. them homeless. Yep. I mean, how awful is that? Dreadful. Anyway, let's talk about women. Yes, let's talk about women. So I'm, I'm just going to give a little shout out. It was a fashion show last night ah. of a designer called uh, Julia Clancy. Okay. And she had lots of different sizes of people. And it was the best show I've ever been to in a long, long time because um, there was dancing, there was roller skating. It was like being at a party. Right. And I like the fact that she had a real mix of shapes and sizes. Um, but for me... I just want women who look like me or are the British average. So, you know, it's the most popular dress size in, in somewhere like uh, John Lewis at the moment is size 14. Right. So the average woman is around 14 to 16. Okay. And I would like to see models wearing those sizes. Mm. I don't, I'm not interested in seeing someone who's a size 6, right. who's so pin thin that, you know, they are an Also, they can wear looking. different types of clothes, can't they? Because, you know, there's quite a difference in how that looks. I mean, it does. And I can understand why designers say that, you know, on a hanger, clothes look better. And so that's why you want some, one, one thin. But then on the other side, you've got these really supersized girls mm. who are very, very large. Yeah. And, and, and good luck to them. They can do what they like. But it's not a necessarily healthy 
measure of women. No. It goes a bit too far. It's, I, I feel it's like too far on the edge. But the business tries to make out that that is healthy, that, doesn't it? It tries to say, oh, it doesn't matter how big you are. But it does. Yeah. Unfortunately, it does. You know, you know, your body fat percentage makes a big difference mm. on, on how you will age, whether you'll get sick or not, and how you'll feel, how you'll feel well. many things. Um, so there's these two kind of polar elements, the very, very skinny and the very, very large. Now, what I'd like to see are models of a normal size, so, mm. you know, size 12, 14, 16. Yeah which is the kind of British average. Now, if somebody put on a fashion show and just had those size models in mm. there, so it's like, this is this is today's woman, this is the common woman, yeah. that would be revolutionary. And I, that's what I'd really like to see. And I think a lot of people then will feel that they're being reflected on the catwalks rather no. than having to be these kind of polar opposites. I think you're absolutely right. But, I mean, I was talking to somebody about this the other day and they were saying quite often it's not so much how women are perceived by society or by men, but it's how they're perceived by other women. Yeah. And it's other women sometimes that pressurise you to look a particular way. Oh, well, I, I must admit, I think often I do dress for women. Oh. I dress for my friends. Mm. I think, oh, you know, Laura will think I'll look lovely today yes. if I wear this. Right. Or, you know, and I, and I, I do dress for... I'm not on the pool, Michael. Those days are over. When, well, so you when know. you're when you're young, you might dress for the for the opposite sex. Yeah. But on the whole, I think we dress for other women, so we want to look nice for each other. Yeah. Well, don't worry. You can't stare at anybody in, anymore because it's against the rules on yes, the underground. I, so I see those signs. Everywhere. I mean, I occasionally find myself. I don't go on the underground that much anymore, but occasionally you kind of. You know, you're in some kind of dream state, yeah. kind of looking over there, and you suddenly go, oh, oh, I better not look over there. Yeah. You're sort of staring at the floor in case of causing a... F- it's just mad, it's isn't just it? The world They've actually got a mad. sign at the bottom of London Bridge escalator that says, um, unwanted touching or inappropriate touching uh, is sexual harassment. You go, yeah, well, I think I knew that. Yeah. You know, you go Did- grab somebody on the escalator that I don't know. Exactly. Why do you need a sign? But it's just about control and common sense is gone. That's why we need you. Yeah. Because well, common indeed. sense is gone. And it so has. we need you to talk about common sense. Now, something much, much more serious mm. now. Again, I mean, everybody keeps saying, oh, why doesn't she stop banging on about the lockdown? Because we are going to be suffering the ramifications of the lockdown. Well, we're here for because of the lockdown. We're in this situation come. economically because of the lockdown. Absolutely. Right? I've got no doubt about that. Yeah, I completely agree. It's nothing to do with Ukraine. The children, um, so this study that's come out uh, this week about um, how the lockdown has affected children mm. and that you have primary school children and nursery school children who really can't communicate with one another. One right. another. They have separation anxiety from their parents. They, they get very anxious and stressed being in large groups. Yeah. They don't know how to read other children because right. they haven't mixed with other children. Right. Can you imagine if you're, if you're going into nursery at four years old and you've had two years of just being at home, seeing well, people it. who and are masked up and not being able to read yeah. their faces. And also two years out of your life for 50%. them is practically well it's probably even more than 50 yeah. because you don't remember no, much before bits, yeah. i mean i don't i don't know about you but i don't know what my first people will sometimes say what's your first memory i've got a vague memory of falling into some nettles <laughs> in guernsey right but i don't know whether i remember that or whether i remember my parents telling me about it. i think that's more likely yes, yes. what i think but exactly. i mean aside from that i can't I, there's no one thing that i can say i know when michael graham first existed when he was three years old and this happened i don't know no same here you know. but it's all about the emotions that children have felt during that time and it's been a a very anxious time even the best parents in the world who did not uh, lay their anxiety on their children or thought they weren't they did because they were in an unnatural environment locked in and I'm not talking about these Waitrose lovies these Mm. kind of virtue signaling lovelies who have gardens and have it listen I had my lockdown wasn't bad because Mm. I have a garden so and it was sunny that first time we had a nice time at home I'm talking about these children that are are in big uh, big Blocks of flats, yeah, council, who, council estates, estates who d- can't go out, who were suffocated indoors, who ah. saw uh, stressed and anxious parents who weren't sure where their money was going for, how from coming from, how they're going to feed their children, yeah. weren't allowed in to go into parks. I mean, you they know, were stressed uh, every out, single, stressed out. Every single one of these obscene and disgusting uh, things that they put on us, these these restrictions mm. that should be on posters. That's what should be on the underground now. Yeah. Posters of we won't do this again, and right. yet we're still seeing the masks saying. Oh, wear a mask. I know. It drives me insane. Oh, I know. Absolutely incredible. But but back to kids. So there are there has been a huge amount of mental health problems with children. It's getting younger and younger and younger. And the NHS, of course, don't have any resources. So no, just the hundred and ten billion quid a year that we give them. Yeah. But they can't seem to find any money. They can't find any money, and they can't help the children. And the thing is, the longer that these children are left without help to move them forward, mm. the more that. Um, 
the mental health issues that they have get repressed yeah. and the more likely is that they're going to have serious issues as adults and this is what people don't understand you know, children are resilient mm. they're not resilient they well, might look from, like they're yeah. resilient but it comes and hits you later yes Mike. also they might be resilient if they're a bit older i don't believe that they're resilient at the first instance you know if they're three they're not resilient because they haven't really been around long enough to be resilient. They don't know what to expect. And if you suddenly then give them two years of that, surely that's more than, than that. They know more about that than anything else. Absolutely. But even even teenagers, oh. Mike, um, you know, I was speaking to, um, I don't know if, you, I think you've had him on, Professor Marco Antonio Sparda, yes. who wrote the COVID anxiety syndrome report. Uh -huh. and, um, and every day he's adding to this report about the mental health issues and how they are going to be reflected in later decades. Mm. So we're not we're talking about in 10 years time. So someone who was 15 during the lockdown at 25 will then start develop unless they kind of understand what's happened to them will then start having some really OCDs, mm. um, health anxieties or agoraphobia. And it'll be 10 years later. Right. And this was done to us. Yeah, I know. Incredible. Unbelievable. It is. Well, listen, great to see you. Nice to as see ever. you too. Uh, Tonya Buxton, of course. Um, what are you up to this weekend? Anything exciting? I'm always doing exciting things. If there's a party, I'm there. If there's a dinner, I'm there because I love being with people. At this fashion show last night, it was so tightly packed and yeah. I can't tell you the joy it brought Isn't me. Isn't that great? Being with lots of people smiling and laughing. Yeah, it's tremendous. We are back. I mean, London is definitely back yeah. and it is definitely a much better place to be uh, than it was this even this time last year uh, we'll be coming back to you with lots more of course we've got loads more to talk about uh, including of course prime minister's questions because coming up uh, the tory mp who was arrested last night uh, was in fact bailed uh, so he is now not in custody any longer however um, he's not allowed back onto the parliamentary estates so there'll be lots of people sitting down there looking out for who's not there if you know what I mean. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Also, uh, we'll be doing Prime Minister's Questions with Daisy McAndrew. Uh, she'll be checking in with us to see what Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer are going to say to each other. But I can guarantee you that Keir Starmer will not be asking about Beergate or Partygate because he's now been hoisted by his own rather ridiculous petard, has he not? Uh, and he won't, also won't be able to be going on about how, how much integrity he's got because he can't seem to make up his mind whether he's friends with Jeremy Corbyn or not. He's done one interview where he says he's his friend and his colleague. He's done another one where he says he's not his friend so what is it about these politicians why can't they tell the truth why is it so difficult do you know what i mean 0344 499 1000 is the number uh, we'll check in with more of your tweets more of your uh, texts as well and the number of course is 87222 not the other one i gave you out don't know where that came from uh, some kind of deep memory syndrome this is of course talk tv more after this the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio organization that's come out and said there's not enough diversity amongst the teaching profession right and uh, they're suggesting that we need to have more representation of more sorts of different people apparently too many teachers are too white in this country let's find out why ella very good uh, morning to you welcome morning now i had a look at this organization which was supposedly um giving out this advice right um and they've got an interesting name um, I think it's some kind of foundation or other. It's a charitable organisation. And every single one of their trustees, of which there are 10, uh, is, is completely white. Now, I don't care whether they're white or not, but the fact that they're calling for teachers to be less white seems a bit ironic to me. Well, the, the funny thing about this story is that there's two parts to it. The first is that the suggestion that schools and pupils need teachers who look like them in order to excel. Um, which I think most people would disagree with. You know, a good teacher is a good teacher. Yes. And it's very reductive for, um, you know, black teachers or teachers from who are from ethnic minority backgrounds to suggest that the only kids they can connect with are those from their own communities um, and, and, you know, vice versa for white teachers. I think that's a nonsense and it's, it's a total misunderstanding of what the teaching profession is about you know it's a it's a calling in a way and it's a, it, you have to care about all kids and teachers do care about all kids no matter what their background so i think that's very dodgy yeah but the you know that i think it's fair enough to ask the question which the national foundation for educational research has asked which is you know why is is there a problem with the fact that they've given the start that you know 96 percent of senior staff um, in schools are white, not from a kid's perspective, but from the perspective of uh, whether or not there's a block. And I was reminded of 
uh, the story that came out in March about Robert McCoy, who is the only black scientist, the only black chemistry professor um, in the whole of the UK out of 575. And he was telling a story to the BBC about how, you know, in the 15 years of him putting in funding applications and doing all the stuff that professors have to do to try and get research um, moved forward, he had never been accepted. And I mean, there really is only, there's very few conclusions can come to other than what he believes, which is that his last name has been a block on um, him in 15 years, never being able to get funding, which, and he's, you know, by all accounts, a very good mm. chemist, as good as any other. Yeah. So I think, you know, it'd be ridiculous to suggest that there weren't still, there are still problems in society. Um, but why we have to tie it up with this idea that, I think why we have to, feti- we, we should be careful of fetishizing representation, because I think that's a very reductive way of looking at race relations. Mm. Um, but I'm very interested in any question that says, you know, is there a problem? Is there some kind of disparity? Well, let's let's look into it and let's talk about it. But the thing that people don't talk about very much about this country is that, yes, there are very many parts of it which have got a very mixed population, but there are also very many parts of it that don't have a very mixed population. In fact, you know, the school that my kids go to uh, is almost completely white because it's in a part of Britain which is pretty white, you know. And we always be, are, are told that, you know, you look at London, yeah, it's a very diverse picture. There's, a, you know, 50% of Londoners are probably from an ethnic minority of one kind or another. But most of Britain isn't. So for them to say that, uh, even to make the argument that there should be more diversity in teaching actually is against their own argument, because if they're saying that, you know, most kids would prefer to see a teacher that looks like them, well, if they're white, then that's probably true. Yeah, and I think that it does really reveal the ridiculousness of that first point, which is that, you know, diversity, when we talk about diversity, it's often talked about as if it's a good in and of itself, so that the, you know, it's simply a good thing to have difference in a room, which, you know, I think kind of culturally we might understand, you know, it's more fun. I mean, maybe I'm biased. One of the reasons I love living in London is you can eat from five different countries in one day if you want to, you know, and all of that's great and nice, and that's the kind of... The benefits of a melting pot society but to kind of fetishize diversity to say that if you don't have it if you do live in a kind of monocultural space whether it's uh you know my family's from ireland you know so i can tell you there's large sections of ireland where you won't see many people who are not from that immediate right. town in ireland um uh to say that there's something wrong with that uh, i think gets you into um dodgy territory because you know, it's a bit like the, uh, it, 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 it's, a, it's, I think what it does is it paints a kind of reductive picture of what role ethnic minorities play, because you end up sounding like you sort of need a token um, person of colour in every yeah. uh, job or every role simply to kind of make up the diversity st- statistics. And that's, you know, never mind what, what that says about race relations, it's incredibly unfair for achieve, you know people who are achieving things off their yeah. own back, not based on their identity. Well, it is. Um, I, mean, it is I, kind I think, of, actually think most... Yeah. I'm sorry, I was going to say, it's kind of patronising as well, isn't it? It is. And you know, th- this happens a lot with women as well, which is, uh, you know, the whole kind of idea of... Um, which has been floated again, for example, in relation to all the sort of slightly seedy scandals that have been coming out of the Tory party of late. Um, the, the 50-50 representation in Parliament thing has raised its head again. And it always, you know, the, the, it always kind of sounds like, and in, in education you hear kind of getting 50-50 women in STEM and all that sort of stuff. And it, and as, as a woman, it always feels like you're being used as some kind of pawn, you know, some kind of um, chess piece that needs to be moved into the right place to make the board look okay. Yeah. And, and I think that's pretty insulting. Well, that's it. I mean, we're told an awful lot of primary school teachers tend to be women, you know, and there's always calls for more men to go into primary school teaching. But presumably there's a reason why it might suit some women more than it might suit some men. I don't know what that reason is, and I wouldn't attempt to try and quantify it. But presumably women do the jobs that they want to do and men do the jobs that they want to do. And not everybody's the same. The bottom line always has to be, does the, is there discrimination? Is there a fair playing field? You know, can you get in and get the right interviews without regardless of what your last name is and what, uh, what your identity is? And if so, then, you know, there are other nuances in, like you, like you mentioned, in life, which mean that different people go for different jobs. You know, the, whenever the gender pay gap thing comes out, you know, it's a bit of a cheap joke, but it is always the case that you can point to certain areas, construction, um, you know, bin men. There's a reason why it's called bin men is yeah. that, you know, for large um, parts of 
different sections of jobs and society different genders go for um and you know it there's nothing wrong with that necessarily as long as it's free choice as long as it's people being able to make those choices i think there's a whole lot of micromanaging that goes on that these kind of perhaps in some of these charities and these policy wonk institutes yeah. um that want to kind of uh rather than actually asking what people need in terms of resources and you know whether or not it's the case that lots of people aren't going into senior staff positions and teaching because it's an incredibly difficult job um and something that you have to give your entire life over to if you want to become a head uh, a headmistress or a headmaster but um instead of doing that they sort of say well how can we deal with this superficial sort of um image yeah. basis and I, I mean it really is tinkering around the edges right? isn't it i mean the national foundation for educational research is the name of this organization and I, I would have thought they'd be better spending their time actually working out why so many of our kids come out of school illiterate and why they're not being taught properly well, I mean, that's another thing. If you want to look at the you know, disparities in education, we know from the experience of the pandemic that the biggest defining factor in relation to who does well at school, who doesn't well, who doesn't do so well at school is class. And, you know, the, a, the fact of uh, a generation of kids being sent home and suddenly schools realising that actually uh, maybe not everybody has two laptops at home or right. a strong broadband con connection or, you know, parents with eight arms who can be doing homework with you know five different children. Mm. Uh, you then realise that there is, you know, that's what is the dividing line for most kids, white, black, whatever background they're from. And then indeed there are geographical disparities in, you know, the north and the south because of caste distinctions. Mm do differently so if you want to talk about how we use that horrendous phrase i'm so sick of hearing level up when it comes to you know education or whatever it is then start talking about what's really going on rather than you know you have all this kind of stuff like uh, the channel 4 documentary the school that tried to end racism and all these sort of very intense identity politics based views of education mm. uh, most kids that's not their experience their no. experiences and um, their friends with everyone in their class but what defines how they're going to get on well in life is if they have a good home background, if they've got good teachers and if they've got the resources. Exactly. Ella, thanks very much indeed. Ella Willing there from Spikes uh, talking about education and what's wrong with it. Uh, we've got more coming up after this. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 